Sunday stroll in the park with Den and Kev talking about security. Oh, I love it. Uh, of course, this doesn't. Well, I guess technically they do come out usually on Sundays. Hopefully, we keep that up. So I release some. I mean, little sausage, huh, Dennis? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do all of the work of this podcast except for what people hear on the air. <laughs> you know, I would say in addition to hearing Kev talk 99% during the podcast, yes. Uh, Sunday is a big day for the podcast when it's rolling because that's usually when I get up, get my own little coffee, and edit together a little epi-ep. Hmm. Then I'm releasing Sunday night uh, so that we can make some type of uh, usually on LinkedIn because it's like our big fan base is on LinkedIn, right? Is that true? Or, or maybe not true. <laughs> well, but, I'm um, not monitoring the fan base anywhere else other than LinkedIn. Right. So by then, it's like gone through all of the like Apple processing and whatever that gets mm. done. And we only also have the ability really to look at Apple. We love all all platforms, all platforms. But yeah. When we get our beat on how we're doing, we look at Apple and just kind of double it because they're like 52% of the market share. Yeah. So when we see 2 million views a week in Apple, then we just say. Hey. Yes. When we're looking at Terry Gross's fresh air statistics, <laughs> we see that, those kind of numbers. When we confuse ours with an actual real podcast. Yes. But uh, yeah. So this now we've been we've been doing a little two Sundays in a row, right? Is that true? Not true. You don't remember. Uh, I think it was last it, Sunday. Was it last Sunday? I think it was last Sunday, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. I remember having the coffee. That's right, because we were saying the Sunday coffee date again. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we're two minutes in. Woody banter check. I have my list of things to do. (laughs) I've got banter check. I've Uh, got lots of uh, nonverbal nodding to do uh, for this podcast. So, yes. That is. Got a secret. What is it? Threat modeling? Let me start again. <laughs> <laughs> you this, nailed the upward inflection, though. The secret to threat modeling is knowledge management. I, I, I like this. I'm ready to dive in. Do your customary. We got we to gotta set the baseline. Dennis, you and I have this shared language of over... How long do we work together? Seven years, almost. I mean, closely together, like maybe five of that. Yeah. But we then, for a total of seven years, work together. But um, so let's let's just like make sure because language can be ambiguous, especially threat modeling. I've noticed like a lot of people say use threat modeling in different, even valid situations. But let me let uh, let me. I'll I'll do the work on threat modeling, and then you can maybe help me out on, on knowledge management in general, because I think both of those may be a little ambiguous to people. But when I say threat modeling in this context, I'm talking about 
analyzing system architectures and if you're looking in an application security context or but really just robustly a system architecture of some size for security problems related to the design of those things. Mm-hmm. So this could be called architectural analysis. Um, it could be in some cases maybe called like control validation or um, in certain industries, they do a special type of of threat modeling called like, you know, fault analysis, um, where they're, you know, presuming that some type of, of, uh, component fails and then looking at the system after the failure. And this is maybe in certain cases, a specialized version of that where we're thinking about, okay, well, this security control failed and this, the resulting failure could be some type of bypass or something like that, that would give, you know, an attacker unauthorized access to a system or resources, something like that. So, um, so is that an okay baseline for the threat modeling piece? Yeah, I think you've set the stage well. And uh, I actually, uh, spoiler alert, you know, uh, I very much align with this premise for today's Ooh, show. I don't think that's, it's never a good sign when we align out the gate for the, I like it when we're fighting about the topic. Uh, you know? I know. Well, well, let's see how it, how it goes. But, but, okay, uh, let's uh, anyway, dive in. Let's, uh, why don't you drop the knowledge on knowledge, knowledge management? Well, I've become a broken record uh, ever since reading uh, like uh, the Phoenix projects and the DevOps handbook, and and I, I really latched onto the idea of um, institutional knowledge, and I just thought it was a really great way to capture the spirit of like feedback loops, right? Like why that's mm-hmm. so important. You and I have talked about this before too, but it's really just saying, <clears throat> you know, we're all out there doing a lot of hard work. And let's make sure that we get, get it's getting captured, right? So we don't need to redo that. Um, and so for this knowledge management, I, I would feel like that's saying, hey, you know, we've done threat models and we've got a bunch of people that are doing them. Let's make sure that the threats that Bob is considering are the same as Jim is considering, mm-hmm. right? And as they come up with new and exciting things or, or novel things, that they're getting added to a sort of a library um, or just, uh, you know, however it manifests itself, but to a to um uh to some sort of knowledge yeah. management center right i mean the uh, shortcut i've been using is like hey for this activity we need like shared memory right where yep. and, and we'll dive into that further so i think you did a good job about defining knowledge management and you even jumped one step forward into the actual premise of when this is n- notoriously in application security specifically because in application security, there's other disciplines where like 90% of the project is architecture, right? Like if you're, if, you're dis- if you're implementing a new network, you probably spend a lot more time designing how that network's doing. And then like the 10% of, of the end of the project is implementation, right? And actually there's probably 50% of the project is arguing with uh, Cisco to get a better <laughs> rate or something like that. Right. <laughs> so, but you know, the, the design is really what's, what's the most important thing there. Now that's evolving because now network definitions and architecture have become, you know, in some way, or I mean, I guess the correct terminology is like software divine, defined in the, in the sense that we're dynamically and the networks are, are virtualization, but I, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in 2008 or whatever, where that's how projects went. We spent a lot of up top, 
upfront time thinking about the design of something. So this is across the board. What's what's maybe unique in, in application security is that these maybe these pushes um, to make application development more agile and to combine um, you know operations phase. One of the things that has maybe emphasized the need to be sure to do this threat modeling as in terms of design validation of applications is the fact that like you can occur a lot of debt with the design flaw that becomes a part of your DevOps architecture or application architecture that's not immutable and that's not something that you can change over time mm-hmm. or refactor easily. And where you have risks there, it doesn't matter how quickly you can patch your software because, you know, the business logic flaws or the, um, you know, the the lack of whatever, whatever the, the missing control is, or even if it's something like you're lifting and shifting to the cloud and you haven't really considered how, you know, somebody with insider access in that new cloud, um, you know, ecosystem might be able to... Um, you know, exploit your system in a way. And maybe your risk profile is such that that matters. So, Mm -hmm. um, but so, so threat modeling is really hard to do. Like, you know, um, it doesn't scale well. It requires usually even a, somebody who has an outside fresh perspective on a problem, right? Because we get into this problem sometimes where we try to threat model our own systems and it's just like, we can all kind of design a box we can't get out of, I guess is the metaphor for that, where it's like a fresh perspective is really impactful in this threat modeling space because as the systems designers, you know, we tried to do a good job, but there, we, we might've had some tunnel vision or something. So outside perspective can complicate this, right? You have to bring somebody in from the outside. So even just capturing and defining the architecture for that outside person is a time intensive piece of threat modeling. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> and, and bringing that, out that bringing up this third person uh, or third party person to like, yeah, what it's supposed to be. And that in itself it. is like stage one knowledge yeah. management. Have you described your system clearly? And we just hate to write stuff down. <laughs> like how many projects have bad documentation? How much code out there is missing commentary i'm writing a little bit more code these days much to the chagrin of almost everybody i work with and uh you know (laughs) commenting on on how things work and and being consistent in how i write stuff down that's a challenge right and that's a human challenge some people um i'd say the majority of people um hate to write stuff down which is kind of the key to this successful threat modeling um throughout but there's also this area of shared memory that's important before we even get into threat modeling. And a lot of time spent on threat modeling should be spent in this area. But let's say that you have independent system designers and implementers, meaning either there's more than one person on the team and they're both co-designing and co-implementing or, or you know, at a minimum of two people. Or let's say you have an architecture team um, that's emphasizing design stuff and then passing that on to system implementers. Even in that scenario, sometimes people hate to write stuff down, but the the ambiguity between a system architectural description of some sort and how the system implementers then go and implement that system with with code or with whatever it is, 
there's a whole area and this is a focus should be a throat focus of threat modeling called ambiguity analysis where you know that third person or some some type of person validates that okay this is what was meant by the architecture and mm-hmm. this was meant actually what was implemented actually i did some projects for you where it wasn't even application security but the kind of the whole project was for me to come in and compare what was actually implemented mm-hmm. in infrastructure configurations and how the network actually worked on the network side of things um, with the Visio diagrams and the yep. topology of the networks and the intention. And so that, that was like just a very narrowly focused ambiguity analysis of those, those gaps. But now we're getting into this part, part of the problem of like threat modeling as the activity itself is really time intensive, right? Because you're trying to enumerate how we protect our assets from like a lot of different threat perspectives that sit on a lot of different trust boundaries, meaning like what are the positions that we're really thinking about? Are we concerned about an insider person that has access to this database? Are we concerned about um, maybe we're writing code that goes on to a mobile platform like an iPhone and we have to think about, well, what could an, a malicious author of another iPhone application that has access to the store And could publish, like, what if they're able to convince somebody to install an application next to this on the phone? Or what if Mm -hmm. we're we're actually worried about um, maybe we're giving the the application some type of privileged or um, additional access to our APIs? Um, Maybe this is uh, the the metaphor to bring up. I think we we used it once before on the, like, um, the, on some of the, Apple image scandal, right? Where, you know, these hackers were breaking into, um, you know, Hollywood phones and stealing photographs from that and stuff like that. A lot of that was because the mobile platform APIs that were driving those things were not rate limited in the same way that if you were interacting, you know, through the web interfaces for those things or whatever, right? So those those mobile applications had a little bit of privileged access. So, you know, the threat model of that stuff wasn't, that was a design flaw. That was, you know, those those accounts could be brute forced because they didn't have the same, you know, protections that would normally be in an interactive web application. So, so enumerating all those threats and capturing all those threats is is really it's time intensive in in the best case, and then we go and we make this a lot harder by not writing enough stuff down, <laughs> and um, and here's. The, Here's kind of the the, the metaphor I, I thought to maybe talk about this is like DNA, right? Like mm-hmm. it, let's talk about you know human DNA. Your your DNA and my DNA as two two intelligent humans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked up some stats here. We're ninety nine point nine nine percent identical to all humans are ninety nine point nine nine percent identical to each other. Hmm. Okay. You and I are 99% identical to chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. So our threat model compared to chimpanzees, meaning like the diseases that we get, our basic needs, like let's, you know, drought is a threat that impacts both us and chimpanzees. Maybe we can't get enough food. Maybe we, you know, whatever it is, right? Like these, so it does, if we are comparing, if we're doing a threat model on humans and have already done a very good threat model on chimpanzees, does it make sense for us to reevaluate the 99% stuff of like, yeah, we're both going to die in a fire, 
we're both going to be able to drown to death. We're both, you know, it's like, <laughs> yes. Okay. So, so that's, so being able to build on and spend 100% of the time or a pretty, pretty high percentage of the time thinking about, well, what are things that are unique to humans that change the threat model here? So how can, and this is actually, you know, I mean, uh, how uh, that's why animals are used in a lot of the of, of medical testing is because they have the closer DNA profile. So, so being able to inherit the knowledge from a previous assessment and bringing the metaphor back is like I've got two web applications that are in my data center. They're both web applications. They're going to share about ninety nine percent of the DNA. This one over here is running on Microsoft. IAS and this one over here is running on uh, Nginx, you know, powered by a node stack or something like that underneath it, right? The attacks, the trust boundaries, the data center threats, like considering, okay, mm-hmm. well, somebody has access to be able to yank out a disk drive from both of those service servers in this privileged threat. All of that stuff is the same between those, right? So then I want to spend most of the amount of time, once I've got those layers of threat modeling built, I want to spend the time thinking about, well, what's unique about the node stack here? Okay, well, in this situation, um, you know, our route handlers are different. So we've got to figure out, you know, is there any new risk to that? Or we've got, we're using OAuth here and we're using a different, um, you know, Okta solution over there, whatever it is. So we want to... That's that's the key of this is we want to share. Now I have, I only got as far as chimpanzees. I collected some other statistics. Please share. Let's, let's do. Come let's on, do this don't, don't let this. I want to go to waste. Can you please estimate how much percent DNA we share with cows? <clears throat> okay, we were ninety nine with with chimpanzees. Yes. Yes. Okay, a cow. I'll say ninety five percent. Eighty percent. Well, okay. <laughs> Um, and cows are mammals. Uh, so mm-hmm. interesting slugs. Um, 72%. Oh, holy, holy crap. You're good at this. You're like that IMDB game that I play with you. Uh, oh. so yeah, you're within that slug 70% wow. bananas. Uh, I would say 61%. Mm. 50%. Oh. Okay. But there's a lot of stuff that's going to destroy humans and bananas at the same time, right? <laughs> Meteor from space is a threat. Hey, let's just build. Okay, we know what can take out bananas at a catastrophic level. Let's let's check those boxes, <laughs> vet them real quick, and use our time to think about, you know, uh, yeah, unique threats to humans. So that is true. And we're not, we're very bad at this. And I also have statistics on how bad we are at this. Do you want to hear some statistics? Please, about how bad yeah. We are? Where do you think the statistics I've gathered on how bad we are from this are generated from or pulled from? <clears throat> how bad we are at threat modeling? Uh, how bad we are specifically related to the knowledge management of threat modeling. Um, I honestly, uh, <laughs> my first guess is it going to go to a whole bunch of vendor marketing material, but I, I don't, uh, I don't well, know. <laughs> uh, not totally wrong, but also you're selling yourself short because you participate in the gathering of this data. Ah, okay. So you must be talking about the BSIM community data. Yeah. So the, uh, the company I, uh, I used to work for and the company Dennis works for, uh, publishes data on uh, P 
people who participate in the BSIM project and get their program, their software security initiatives assessed by BSIM, um, they then compile that data, anonymize it, and release it back uh, with like granular level, uh, granular data on uh, how many firms are doing different activities. So first of all, there's some data on how many firms are even doing different types of threat modeling. And in those categories, the there's there's maybe the best one is perform design review of high risk applications. And 41 firms are uh, you know doing that level of analysis where they're doing this. But then um, 114 firms are doing at least a security feature review, which is maybe a, a design review that's focused on, you know, are the prescribed controls in place? Are we, you know, how, how are we doing these basic things? So it's not necessarily end-to-end design review, but it's some level of threat modeling there about expectations. Um, now, so we have 41 firms doing threat modeling, and I'll just focus on one data point here that I think is most interesting. Of and it's not even necessarily of those forty-one firms, but do you of the hundred and thirty BSIM eleven participants and the forty-one doing that thing? Do you know how many are writing down technology-specific attack patterns? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I and I'm not going to cheat and look it up. Um, but my guess would be twelve. Yeah, you're pretty close. You won the IMDb game there. Yeah, <laughs> ten. So, so about less than a fourth of. And it, like I said, uh, it's not necessarily one to one. There is certain circumstances where somebody might be creating technology specific specific attack patterns and not using them in threat modeling. But by and large, that's why people would be creating technology specific attack patterns. So about 25% of the people doing threat modeling, we can estimate using these two figures, are writing down that shared memory, that 99%, you know, uh, combined. And there's even less people in different areas of, of like um, uh, build and maintain a top end attacks list. Um, well, that's actually more that's 16, but there's probably a little bit more different places you might want to do that. But so, so there's, you know, it's pretty, pretty clear that not everybody doing threat modeling is capturing these fun, these two kind of fundamental units of, um, of, of knowledge for reuse. And I think that that, and, and here's the analogy I used the other day, you know, at, uh, when talking about the same problem was, um, you know, if we're looking at a new application that's going into our product group or something, and we're, we're, we spend a considerable amount of time in the threat modeling conversation talking about, you know, the man in the middle ethernet attack space for this web applications, like, Almost everything we do has has those layer two implications. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, let's make sure that we think about if there's anything unique, look at it real quick and get on to something that's that's a unique risk for this, you know, um, for this particular application or product. Right. So. um, So, yeah, knowledge management is 
so there's some objective data out there that says, and you know, in BSIM, maybe it's not clear to everybody, but there's two practice areas that really relate heavily to threat modeling and, and design review. I think it's pretty clear that architecture analysis in BSIM, and this is all data you can go out and download for yourself and look at uh, at bsim.com. But the architectural analysis practice is like doing the activities of different like levels of intensity and threat modeling. And even one of those is actually defined, you know, is writing down the threat modeling process itself. So kind of that run book of like how consistently you are. And another one is how you standardize those architectural descriptions, which could be either inputs or outputs to your program. And that's even, that's pretty low at 24 too. So maybe only half of the people that are doing design review even have a consistent language that they're writing down their findings in, um, or maybe writing, you know, making sure that they're, their architects are describing their applications using some base data. So, um, but then there's also attack models. And I found that by and large attack models is probably the least well understood BSIM category of like, what does it mean? Attack models. They're mostly, this is mostly the knowledge management Mm -hmm. category that drives threat modeling as well as some other activities. Um, certainly some of the activities here that you might want to capture as knowledge could drive penetration testing as well, right? Building a, a top end possible attacks list, which is attack models 2.5 that should feed into both your threat modeling process as well as your penetration testing process. Um, so there's, there's other areas where these things can be used, but their attack models is really a knowledge management category of, uh, of the BSA. Um, Okay, so we're we're in our new format where we're we're pithy. We hit the hot spots. Uh, I, I think we did a pretty decent job of covering this topic. Uh, maybe any any tips that that people have that that you have or that I I might have for what where would you get started if you were if you were what any advice out there to, for getting better at knowledge management around threat modeling. Well, certainly I would just say, don't put all the work that you've, you know, don't waste the work that you've done, right? A good Mm -hmm. starting point is to take all the threat models that you've done that maybe you've had other people do, go take that and make sure some you are for all the, you know, findings out of those and things that you actually took, that you took action upon, um, get that worked into your process, right? Because the Mm -hmm. whole, I just view it as you know, a bug is a bug is a bug, right? Like a security issue is a bug. A security issue that's in the design is a bug. A security issue that's in the code is a bug. So at a, at a macro level, the mission that we're trying to achieve, right, is like the bugs that, that, that cause us problems, we want to stop them from happening again, right? And so any of those findings out of your threat modeling, figure out uh, in however you're doing it, right? Uh, whether it's like kind of like proactive security questioning, like you're sort of talking about with, um, you know, attack patterns. If we're if we're using this thing or we're doing this function, make sure that we consider these you know n number of bad security things. Make sure it's getting baked into there, right? So that mm-hmm. uh, that the hard work that you've done already isn't going to waste. So that that's number that that's one. Um, and then you know, figuring out and this is you know figuring out how to inject that info um, proactively. I think it goes a long way. I know that threat modeling is more mm-hmm. is typically more of a I'm testing your design, which, which is fine and is happening early. But if there's a way to 
as they are designing to consider these things. Um, you know, so almost translating them into security requirements, that kind of thing, um, or some sort of like secure I, design pattern. Oh, that's what that, I would. That I I love, and I even didn't grab the the statistic around that. But that that's a great point. Is if you are investing, like what is the you know people love to talk about return on the investment. <laughs> I'm just throwing this back in their face more than anything, but threat modeling. You know, okay, you you tweak a couple of designs, you mitigate some design risk or something like that. If you don't capture that new rugged design as a pattern, meaning let's generalize this back down a step and say if somebody goes and is implementing a system of this type, here is a reference architecture that has been vetted by our mm-hmm. process. If you're not doing that, which takes maybe 5% additional time at the end, you're throwing away a lot of the potential return on investment that you could have through threat modeling. Like that, and and that, and uh, while you uh, entertain us all, I'll pull the data on how rare that is. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's sort of natural because for folks to do, because they look at threat modeling or any kind of design review as like, 100% art and like, well, maybe 99% art and 1%, you know, science, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. we had to bring in this smart guy who did some magic and found all these threats in our, um, in our system, right? And it's kind of just like, you know, just focus on trying to make it more of a science, right? Like, sure, he came in, he did something bespoke potentially, but you're just gathering that and now you're injecting it and making those considerations part of your process so that, you know, as the machine of software development continues to churn, you know, you're adding these checks. These checks are now baked into the process. So just baking things into the process, I wouldn't worry. Um, I, I wouldn't worry on too much on like, I guess air quotes, you know, making it pretty, right. <laughs> but make, mm-hmm. just getting those security considerations in upfront. Um, mm-hmm. and, and running through, like, you know, maybe it's just using your P-cert data to say, you know, these were the worst things that happened to us that root cause analysis back to yeah, right. these issues in design. Got, that's our, that's our proactive top 10 you know, things to consider, right? We don't want to wow. get burned by these things again. So, uh, kind of uh, just harkening way, I, back to your process escape view. Yes. I, I, really I was like going to, I was put a footnote for people. We did talk about escape analysis as being one of the most critical software security initiative things to be done in, in a very similar way that we're talking about. How do we learn from this like intensive amount of work we did in threat modeling the, you know, that escape analysis and then the artifacts out of that escape analysis is kind of this knowledge we're talking about. Um, I want to play one last round of the BSIM guessing game with <laughs> Uh, esteemed BSIM assessor, uh, Dennis Sheridan, and former uh, BSIM enthusiast, Kevin, I mean, still BSIM enthusiast, former BSIM assessor, Kevin Osry. Find and publish secure design patterns from the organization. 130 participants, Dennis. And the, the uh, I'll dub in the Jeopardy music here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm if going... it's public domain. Um... Probably not. I'm going to say 11. Four. Wow. Now that's find and publish secure design patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, one place you can find 
Secure design patterns is as outputs of a threat modeling process in that generalization. So that would probably be the main place I would expect to find these things in terms of like where where those four people, I'm sure I found two or three of those four. And that's that's the most common way that you would, the, the other way is like, okay, actually just designing secure design patterns kind of from scratch and trying to champion and get their buy-in. But the, the more successful way to do that is, is as outputs of the threat modeling process. So, okay. Very cool. Um, people do not, I, I mean, if, if we want to end this with a pithy one-liner before we get into, I've got a really elaborate way that I've sent you our, our the score this week. Um, people don't, if you do not get good at threat modeling, right? In terms of scalability, you can get some tools to help you draw pictures. You can get some, you don't, it doesn't scale well. If you don't, ca- like people try to scale the threat modeling process in so many different ways. They'll try to scale decisions or the interview process or whatever. The number one way you scale it is by capturing the lessons learned from before. And if you are intense about it, you actually, we did that podcast on platform diversity. You partner with that so that your threat models look more similar and the knowledge is more applicable between projects so that you can even, you know, you you basically limit the scope of what you need to be creatively thinking about how to break design with, um, you know, through, through reuse in those ways. A lot of shared platforms, but then also the shared knowledge from project to project of, you know, going through and, and brainstorming how these, these design failures could lead to security issues is very time intensive. So the scope has to be really constrained as much as possible to what are the unique considerations for this new application versus, okay, I'm going to fire up, oh, there's, there's a art poisoning attack on this subnet here. It's like, okay, that's a, that's everybody's layer two threat model since, since Ethernet was invented. So, um, okay. Dennis. Kev. I have wasted all of our podcast proceeds. And I've hired the David Blaine. Okay. Now you are, I'm just, you're in your living room. I know mm-hmm. this because David Blaine has told me this. Mm-hmm. David Blaine is as always correct. You have a window in this living room, not yes. to, uh, and I just know this because of David Blaine. And that window consists of two layers Mm-hmm. There is a card, a playing card inserted between those two layers. Okay. And before you even do it, I'm just going to tell you it's a jack of diamonds. <laughs> okay. Is this the part where I go? Yes. I, I first, up? confirm that it's a jack of diamonds for the everybody. Okay. Hold on. It is a jack of diamonds. Okay. So, I mean, how would I have known this had I not hired David Blaine to do this? So. Uh, at this point, I would like you to, uh, between the last two, like right by where the, the Jack of diamonds is kind of like hitting himself in the head with an ax. There's a little number there and I'd like you to first and foremost rate the podcast based on how much you believe us. Doesn't sound like I did a lot of convincing today. Sounds like we did a lot of agreeing today. But I would like for you to give us your impressions of how much did this conversation result in you believing this to be true on a scale of zero to 10? 10. 
10 out of 10 true. 10 out of 10 true. All right. What's on the card? I'm looking at the card. Just getting my magnifying glass one second. Okay. It says 10. Dennis, what are you doing? Every week you do this. Every week I put it into the chat. In what chat? I did say in uh, the chat that we used to record this. This is this exact same thing that happened. I'm not dude, even. You did not even anymore. give me any backup on this thing. I almost literally stood up and looked I at almost my always for put Jack. it into the chat window. I'm just saying you started riffing with this whole David Blaine thing. I wasn't following. I'm <laughs> trying to. I'm improving with you here. All you gotta do is read it. Your whole job is to read the chat. I'm confused. Sometimes you. Send it to me on Signal. I don't know. And then so I had no backstory. I've been using this chat for quite. I have. I've been using this this chat window for the last several versions of this. Can we please get with the program? We're not editing any of this out. Please now look at the the chat. (laughs) Nine 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 out of ten. True. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could have gone ten. I was just trying to sneak a point here. Well, there we go. Please edit that out. Thank you for... I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I think I'm going to let it ride. And if you don't next week know where to go for this... Okay. We, we, if we, I don't even know if we can edit this out at this point. Uh, <laughs> nine, nine, <laughs> nine true. Uh, world, yeah. Are we, world would you say that we're halfway through season two? Or no? No. We're, actually... You're halfway through season two. <laughs> my run, my contract with this podcast is being terminated after... <laughs> It's not Me, I, I mean, I. So, we, yeah, I mean, right. Well, now I guess we're we're eight. Let's just put it this way: we're, we're good. We're a good way into season two, and I still don't understand the concept of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of reading. We might podcast. have to just abandon the concept, uh, but not yet. I mean, <laughs> by the way, I had to take a mortgage out for this David Blaine situation, <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> Sarah's gonna kill me. This was a big letdown that. Uh, and also that you just lie <laughs> that you just guess I, I just guess of course i just lie and guess you're asking me about like pulling a playing card out between my window or you got so emerged immersed in the you, in the yeah improv. sometimes you throw me these curveballs where i just think that we're just completely improving and i just whatever i say you're no, gonna go with and say that it's true Dennis, like why didn't you just say truth why didn't you Dennis. just say when i said oh 10 out of 10 and you were like well internally in your internal monologue you should just been like oh yeah, 10. Okay, great. No, That's what you should have Because I'm angry, and I just wish that you could follow this basic premise that we've laid out here. <laughs> so like a minimum standard. Sorry, my my uh, my tiny brain has it's right. very well, tough to wrap around this concept. Shout out to new podcast uh, co-host uh, Jacob, who will be joining us next week. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it's been a great run. I really appreciate it. This was the the season finale just for me. Never, never, Dennis, you you complete me. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And my likeness is in the logo, so you have a very tough time getting me out of this. That seems like I could crop that out. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.